At a vigil for Ali Reza, I stood among an idle group of some 30 Iranian-Americans on Boston Common, trying futilely to keep my candle lit against the biting wind. My mother was with me. We recognized a few other Iranians and made awkward conversation. Commuters rushed past us into Park Station. It was perhaps 6.30 at night, and people were trying to get home and out of the cold. We waited for someone to speak, but no one did. At one point, someone attempted to start us all in a song of remembrance, but not everyone knew the words, and our voices wouldn't come together in any meaningful way, and so we all grew silent. You're listening to My Shadow is My Skin, Voices from the Iranian Diaspora, a special series on What's That Noise? My father finally sat me down for a big talk about what was happening. I felt relieved, assuming he'd help me make sense of it all. As a child psychologist, he most likely would give me some much-needed courage to keep going to school. More and more, kids were saying stupid things to me about the Ayatollah. Look here, Raji boy. When anyone asks where your family is from, tell them we're Greek. That's it. The culmination of what a PhD in psychology from the University of Wisconsin could do for your kid. But dad, I asked, we don't speak Greek. I thought I had him, but then he hit me with, okay then, tell them we're French. Just say bonjour and you know, walk away. But be nice, smile a lot. Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode three of My Shadow is My Skin, Voices from the Iranian Diaspora, a very special series on What's That Noise. It has been a while since I've posted an episode on my show. It's been a demanding and exhausting year for everyone. This is why I've been trying to put as much time aside as I can for this episode. It's taken a while but I'm very proud to be at this moment, and I'm very grateful for your time, of course. This episode speaks to that very demand and exhaustion, and not just of this past year, but of the past four years, and many more, evidently. Today, we chat with Professor Mehdi Okazi and Dr. Roger Sederet. Mehdi is a professor of creative writing at Purchase College of the State University of New York, who was born in Iran and became a refugee of the Iran-Iraq War, which led him to the suburbs of Boston. And Roger is a professor in the Department of English at Queens College of the City University of New York. Roger was born in Normal, Illinois. I didn't actually know there was a Normal, Illinois. And he was born to an Iranian father and grew up in San Antonio. You've heard both of them already, respectively. The passages that they shared with us at the beginning of this episode are quite different, aren't they? These are two distinguished American scholars with Iranian heritage who have quite different stories to share with us. And as Catherine so eloquently puts it, They were honest, but there was so also so much love. I think that's what came through. They, they treated their subject matter with so much compassion and, and love, which made them really powerful pieces. Roger's chapter in My Shadow is My Skin begins with his account of his Iranian father, who moved to the United States to attend college in the Midwest and became, by his account, the most American man he's ever known. Two countries, one divided self, is an almost satirical narrative of Roger's upbringing by his father. It's funny, but it drives straight toward an emerging tension between Iran and America that Roger inherited from his father. Mehdi's chapter, when we were lions, as I'm sure you felt in his voice, tells a very different story. Mehdi begins with a song many of us know. Mehdi tells us that this song really tells his family's story. He says, it evokes the ethos of my mother's experience as a political refugee fleeing Iran with two young children, arriving in America in 1987 
with $100 and nowhere to call home. And as he describes so many very elucidating connections throughout his chapter, he does a great job of situating them within a detailed account of his journey home to Iran. A tension-filled trip indeed to attend his dear mother's funeral. We talk through these chapters, these wonderful chapters, but they are indeed the occasion of this episode, and not necessarily its focus. You see, Layla and Catherine introduced me to Roger and Mehdi via email, which was of course occasioned by this dreadful pandemic, and also a very recently concluded American election. And like a bitter fall rain malignantly chilling even the most resolute of spirits, 2020 claimed another victim. That victim is Catherine and Layla's Twitter account. Back in, I think it was late September, uh, we tried to log into Twitter and were met with a message that our account had been disabled due to inappropriate use, which was very surprising and angering. So what followed was several unsuccessful attempts to get the account reinstated and really very little, if anything, from Twitter regarding why this had happened. But um, from everything I could gather, it, it looked like the account had been reported. And I can only assume that it had to do with the fact that, you know, in addition to obviously posting about the book and trying to promote the authors and our events, you know, we also have used Twitter as a platform to discuss wider issues of racial justice and um, intersectionality. And, you know, these are things that are inflammatory to some people and it doesn't take much to to anger people enough to report posts like that. You know, yes, this is a, a book focusing on, you know, Iranian Americans and and people who are, you know, married to Iranians, but issues of race and racism and, you know, promoting racial justice. I mean, these are things that affect all of us and you know, I think we we felt like we're not going to shy away from posting about those things. And so instead of talking primarily about their chapters, Roger, Mehdi, and I came together through the occasions of politicized censorship, the ironies of cancel culture, and of course, their catalyst, a pandemic riding out on the heels of the most incompetent president in American history. So today... We talk politics, but we do so in a way that's remarkably productive, I think, toward a more comprehensive understanding of the complexities of identity, belonging, and community. From the burden of hybridity, the policing of the imagination, and the absence of space for ambiguity, to the false ideal of whiteness and the commodification of lies, there's something here for everyone. We begin by discussing the utter disappointment, of course, of Catherine and Layla's Twitter account being suspended, and Twitter's refusal to not only reinstate it, but of their lack of willingness to actually investigate what happened. Nothing's really interrogated. It's like, you know, after 9-11, they were, um, there was a process of building um, some kind of center or school, actually. And they were naming it in that area where I used to work in Tribeca, lower Manhattan, uh, the Hayal Gibran School. And there was just this massive, you know, oh my God, this is terrorism, this is Islam. And Hayal Gibran wasn't even, he was Christian, you know? And nobody even talked about that. Like, that's just, you know, <laughs> this phenomenon just keeps happening. It's from the Middle East. Oh, it must be, you know, terrifying, you know? Or somebody said this, that's writing from the anthology. Therefore, you know, that's what everybody's, you know, let's just typecast the whole project and everybody in it, you know, and that, that just seems to be the age we're, we're living in. There's no real interrogation anymore. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I approach this from from a slightly different perspective, and 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 that is that, you know, um, in my own family's sort of history and narrative, you know, my my mom uh, decided to to flee Iran with my brother and I because uh, she saw the ugly nature of politics and she saw the ways in which people are constantly subverting truth to their aim. Um, and, you know, the idea of coming to America initially was, was, was this idea of freedom, but, but really this idea that one cannot be persecuted. Um, and, and the true, the truth is that over years we've realized that often, you know, um, in order to survive, we have to be silent and it's no longer that in this day and age. And that's why I love reading this anthology to see, you know, these voices, um, that are, that are hybrids and, and, and claiming, you know, claiming their, their place. Uh, For me, it was, it was always a kind of, um, form of, um, sort of miming my way through or, or being somewhat of a chameleon and, and being afraid to truly speak. And in the moments when I tried, whether this is, you know, the passage I read or, or when Neda was, um, when her death was sort of captured, which I also write about and, and being in front of the Boston public library and trying to bring attention to, you know, these, these issues, um, it, it felt like a kind of apathy in general. And so there would be in name, I felt like there are, you know, allies in name, but but in truth, most people didn't really care. And so, and I understand it. It's not like I don't blame that. There's so many issues going on in this world and we all have our fights. But um, for me, Trump's Trump's coming into office was a, was a time and a particular moment where, um, you know, you know, you know. I, I didn't think it was anything new. It felt like you know, people say he's a, he's a symptom, you know, not the cause of of the ways in which America has sort of gone off the rails in many ways. And um, and I kind of I, I I feel that in his vitriol is also a different kind of truth that we're not facing. You know, I mean, to this point, still we haven't really sat with the idea that half this country. Um, voted for him and still supports him. And that hasn't changed. The margins have only kind of grown, you know? Um, so, I mean, I, I also think it's complicated because, you know, like you said, Tommy, that, that, you know, I mean, do you, do we know that it was, it was right wingers that reported it? Because at the same time, you know, I'd emailed that link about Negar, Negar's um, uh, article, uh, but Within the Iranian community, there are so many, you know, different agendas, and 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 um, I've been the novel I'm currently writing. I've been doing a ton of research into the Mujahideen Khalq and you know the National Council of Resistance of Iran, and um, you know they they are they are uh, I'm blanking on the name. Maybe you guys can remember. Uh, it was recently there was an article about it as well. But Hashim, someone this 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 fake persona that they created that has published in Forbes and um, has published these articles. And and still to this day, I believe they finally canceled his Twitter account, but I think he got a new one. And this guy is not an actual person. He's a, a persona that's, that's sort of constructed by the MEK. And so I just, I feel always, I always wonder like, where is it coming from? Like, where's the, you know, who, who is, who is hostile to us? It often feels like, we have many people that are hostile to us, you know? Um, so I just, so it's, yeah, sorry. I'm blabbing no, a little know, bit. But. I really, I, that's helpful to hear all that, you know, and, and it is, it's important to say, we don't know, you know, who's censoring this. I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting and I don't want to get in trouble here, but like, you know, an autocratic, you know, my, my family that was closely affined with the Shah, I had one uncle that was an education minister under the Shah. Another one was the head of his secret police, you know, for the, the southern half of Iran. So they were very much, and he, they were, ex, one was executed in the revolution. Um, so, you know, what side of history was I even on? But, you know, persecuting the intellectuals and you can't say anything or publish this book, but strangely in kind of a Zizekian kind of understanding, I think that, you know, the gift of that that autocratic, you know, despot 
there was an underground or still is like there's an underground kind of humor and art thrives and like the the artistic community in, in Iran is amazing. You know, these underground shows and like it's the poetry that's getting written that's not supposed to be written, as it were, you know, but what's happened in America. And I don't put it just on Trump. It's this mounting social media. I think it's global. And I think what's even scarier in some ways is, you know, America nominally has this freedom of expression, right? Oh, we always, but really, you know, and I, I don't think it takes, you know, uh, sadly, almost more scary. It's not the government saying, you know, X, Y, or Z, when you can't publish that or say that. It's these corporations like Twitter, Google, Do No Harm, Larry Page, they were going to save us. They were like messianic when Mark Zuckerberg came, right? Mark Zuckerberg helped Trump get elected, you know, the first time. Um, so that scares me. And then what scares me more, um, last year, I, my last poetry book, I got this big grant to put it on the stage. And, you know, in the one minute, the 30 second pitch, it was a stereotypical Iranian character that I play and it's performance poetry, Haji. And, you know, he reproduces stereotypes and he was doing the show. It had a little run in Brooklyn at the Brooklyn Music School. And he brings out a lot of like in your face, this is how the West looks at Iran. You want a terrorist? I'll show you a terrorist. It was sort of like Dave Chappelle meets the, you know, daily show, the old daily show. And what I'm building to is, I had Haji had as his guest on this mock um, TV show, uh, Nikki Najumi, who's one of the most famous living Iranian artists. He was voted like top five artists um, in Iran the last 20, uh, last of the 20th century. And so I'm nervous. I can't believe he's going to be on it. And I do the little pre-show interview and I said, Nikki, you know, uh, he's banned in Iran. He has a death threat. If he goes back, he'll be killed for what he's painted and whatnot. Um, really uh, recognizable Iranian. And I said, Nikki, I'm just terrified. Are you terrified? I'm like, I'm going to do this with the Iranian community. What are they going to do to me? You know? And he said, oh, Roger Jin, I think you should be as worried, if not more, of the American community, of what the intellectuals are going to do to you. And, you know, he was, point was, can you, can we even be funny like this in the 21st century in Brooklyn? You know? And I think that's a really interesting, I had colleagues that just um, and the last thing I'll say, you know, a, a specialist in Asian comedy, she's Far Eastern, um, uh, Caroline Hong, um, you know, I I asked her, you know, I ran it by her what, what I was doing. And she said, boy, just be careful because humor doesn't play as well as it used to, you know. And Mehdi and I come from this rich tradition in Iran of just incredible calling out of hypocrisy humor. I mean, Twitter looks like nothing compared to like what Hafez did to these hypocritical mullahs. And we need them today in the 21st century. <laughs> yeah. And Roger, what you're saying actually kind of reminds me, um, you know, of uh, Ayad Akhtar's uh, Disgraced. And, and when, when that play um, was first performed, um, it was, you know, recently after 9-11, you know, it, it resonated, but over the years, the, the sensibility of the audience has changed. And there was a lot of critique about the way in which he depicts, um, you know, his Muslim character, right, in that. And, and part of that is because, you know, as, as, as audiences change, um, maybe the reception changes. But I think, but I think it's, it's enigmatic of, a, of kind of a larger issue, which is that still to this day, we have such a scarcity of representation and voice that um, there seems to be a kind of unjust uh, expectation put on, you know, on Iranian artists, and 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 so you know, yeah, you know, it is it is it is okay to write to write that kind of character, right? Like we shouldn't we shouldn't put these limits on art because when once you do, it becomes a kind of propaganda, and that's not what what artists are interested in doing, right? Um, you know, it's all about nuance. It's about contradiction. It's about the unanswerable and the unseen, and and that's the realm of what of what I think you know artists are trying to do. And and there doesn't seem to be these platforms, Twitter, so all these social media platforms, they're not good at nuance. They're not a platform for nuance and actual dialogue. It seems to be a way, you know, a platform for for zingers and. And, you know, and I think it's not all bad, like nothing in the world is all bad or all good. And, but I've just seen the trajectory of where it's gone and what the discourse is. It's, it, it tends to be kind of vile, you know, there's a lot of, 
there's just a lot of like, you know, maleficence that, that I see online and it becomes not a great space. And I don't know, what does that say about our culture? What does that say about who we are and, and who we want to be? Yeah, it, it's a great question. And it, it really makes me wonder about legitimacy and authority of the voice and these platforms. So what I mean by that is this. When you have a platform that's saturated with privileged voices, white voices that are spewing vitriol, what happens to the legitimacy and the authority of the voice of a person of color? Surely there's a consequence here. There's no problem if you're white and you're angry on these platforms. But there must be a consequence to privileged voices, authority, and legitimacy, at least perhaps to the extent that it destroys or really cuts back on the legitimacy or authority of the voice of a person of color. It's really interesting, you know. I, I t- speaking about humor. Um, it all it seems to me that that those who are most devastated have the best sense of humor because how do you survive true true hardship and trauma if you cannot laugh at it, right? There, you know. So I I often you know talk with family in Iran and 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 I just see it around the world that that you know we have to find a way to laugh as a way to sur- to survive and. Um, but when we are when agendas are set for us when expectations are set for the kinds of narratives or the or the modes of telling um i think that's incredibly dangerous and i think that's what what we're seeing uh, you know through america is, is a pushing up against that and saying wait a minute like there's more room here there's abundance here there's abundance of 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 of, of language and points of view and, and, and the stories that we can tell. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm right now I'm reading, um, Ruman Alam's leave the world behind. And, and, you know, he writes in the point of view of this, like, you know, upper middle-class white family, um, who sort of read this vacation home in the Hamptons and, 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 the there's some, some natural disasters happening, the power surge and electricity has been lost and the owners show up and the owners, are, are, are a black couple. And so it, it's to me, and, and Ruman Alam is a, you know, is an um, Indian American, right? Um, and so to, to be able to like write those kind of stories, like I just, for me is, 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 is so incredible, right? To like write across race and to write into whiteness, um, which I, which I never felt, I don't know what you think about this, Roger, if you've had this kind of conflict, but when I was sort of beginning and and in workshops and whatnot through graduate and, and postgraduate it, it never felt like uh i i had the permission to do so you know like i felt like my topic i was sanctioned to write about the iranian identity i do yeah i feel that so much that typecasting um which and i don't know if you had this many that's helpful to hear like i the burden of hybridity for me you know it's like on one level i am iranian american like my father is couldn't be more Iranian, like from Shiraz, like, you know, just deep into the, all the, the stereotypes, male stereotypes ring true for, rang true for him. And then my mother from like Illinois on a farm, you know, and, and, you know, I had this, the pushback from some, some in the Iranian community. It's like, I'm taking this over and like, who are you to speak to this? Well, I have two passports, you know, but I do live in America. And then on the same, you know, in the academy, in the American academic tradition is, I, I would always be looked at you know, in writers' workshops or like, oh, why don't you, you know, why don't you explore that? And I'd, I'd write a poem that had nothing to do with Iran or, or being, you know, different in that way. And a teacher would just encourage me to just keep going with that Iran thing, you know, and the, the burden of, the burden of identity in that way. You know? I mean, it's a kind of policing of the imagination, right? That's, that's ultimately where we, and the commonality I, I see in all of this is is that it's fear based, you know? Like, there's a reason I I framed the essay as I did, which was this like this my, my obsession with this song. Sunny came home and and, and uh, I mean it was it was it was quite I was quite obsessed. Like, you know, I, I my brother got to a point where you know we had a long drive back and forth from Cambridge, where I went to high school, um, to where my parents you know had bought a house here in, in Marlboro, and it was you know a long drive in the winters. It could take upwards of two hours and. I used to play this song on repeat, but 
you know, the reason I w- kind of wanted to, to, to explore it that way is that, you know, we are, we are not our nationality, then we are not our ethnicities, and we are more than that. It is part of it, but it is not the all of it. And I, I think that whenever, you know, whenever artists and, and writers can sort of look beyond the ways in which we compartmentalize and segment ourselves to the human experience, which I do, which I do think is, is, is universal, right? I think we all, we all want to be happy. We all want security. We all want a sense of, um, you know, love and joy and happiness in the world. And, 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 and to try to limit and police the imagination, I think is incredibly dangerous. And I think that's what we continually see online. That's what we see with personas like Trump, who in my mind is just, you know, a, you know, a kind of like one of those blow up dolls that just has come to life in this horrific show. And there's nothing there. There's just emptiness there. And, and it's, more and more these people that feel like they have the positions of power and you know we can't talk about we can't talk about you know ethnicity race in this country without talking about power and power is a weird weird concept within the Iranian diaspora when you think about classism when you think about you know because that that's very prevalent still and you know i for me it was very refreshing to read some of these essays here where where writers are you know who have a uh you know half iranian who are half iranian really talk about how intimidating that is that experience is right to face the iranian community just like you were talking about um you know roger so yeah i don't know there seems like to be very little room just in our our culture today, our cultures, like for ambiguity or for that, what I think what's the the saving grace of all this, and I, I see it in your work too, Mehdi, it's like being between places and being, you know, in that ambiguous hybridity, The maybe it is the burden, but also like there is this kind of so many interesting, amazing, creative people are somewhat outside, like one foot in, one foot out. And to challenge it and to write as, as un- uncomfortable it is, there's that great line from, from Bob Marley, right? Being from both a white parent and a black one. He's like, some people are trying to push me over that I'm, I'm more black and others more white. And he says something like me, me just digging on God, you know? And, and it's just that like, I, I think Bob, Bob Marley was born in, in a certain kind of like third space as homie Baba might talk about it, you know, like colonize or colonize. And there's something in that intersecting circle, um, the pressure cooker that something kind of can can form, and I I see that a lot now in um, in Iranian American writers and, and creative types. Mehdi, there's a passage in your chapter that I think is really appropriate here, and if you don't mind, I'd like to read it. As I listened to children's stories in Iran, the power of the beginning shifted my imagination inward to the self, to my existence as the will of God. In America, I read stories that began once upon a time. And my gaze moved to the landscape, to the makeup of that world, to far-off places. This tension between consciousness and time, between the self and the world, between the private and the public, is one that I've struggled with as I've come to understand the power of narrative and the place to begin a story. I am pulled between those forces, how to be, but also how to be in the world. This passage is brilliant. And it really makes me think about how one negotiates their own beginnings. It seems that the stories that you heard growing up in Iran turned you in, as you say, in the sense that they're making you reflexive. And then you come to the U.S. and the stories that you hear for kids encourage kids to turn out. I wonder, can that precondition or engender some sort of aversion to risk or discomfort. And the reason why I'm wondering this is because in the past four years, we're seeing many people of different ages, but particularly youth, that do not seem to have a sense of accountability or responsibility for anything that they have said or done in that time span. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I mean, that's exactly right, right? You're looking at Trump now. He's not conceding that he, that he, that he lost. This, here's somebody who is incapable of doing the hard work of looking within, right, um, and facing the truth of, of, of who he is. You know, I, I, I always tell my students, like, a good place to, to begin a story is as close to the moment when 
you know, your protagonist's notion of who they are or their story of who they are is, is, is tested, right? Where suddenly their entire world is inverted because it's no longer, you know, aligning with the narrative they tell themselves. And, and that work is hard, right? The work, the work, the work of looking internally is hard, but I think that's ultimately what artists are trying to do. I'm always heartened to see that there are young people who are interested in like taking creative writing classes and getting an MFA and sort of exploring art as a, as a way to be in this world where increasingly, and the Iranian community is, is very guilty of this, right? Like my own mother, um, you know, when I told her I wanted to be a writer was horrified, right? Like she, she, you know, that's not a sanctioned art. That's not a sanctioned way to live life. And it's not because she undervalues art. It's that she understood how hard that path would be. Um, you know, how hard it is to to try to make a living in that way, given that people, um, you know, tend to judge you before giving you a chance. And people maybe don't have the kind of attention span for nuance and 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 complexity um and that we tra- we're constantly trying to trying to do things in shorthand um i i don't know i mean i think that i think that this is not unique to the american experience i think this is true of of everyone in the world because we could look at iran and all the issues going on there and 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 sort of with people in power in politics and say the exact same thing but for me it's always for me, it's always been that intersection of, of public and private and the way in which, um, you know, Philip Roth says uh, fiction is the private exploration of public lives. And I've always loved that way of thinking about it because we, we are, but we're also in the world and, you know, we don't live in a vacuum. And so we, ha- we have to find a way to, to, to sit with that, to, to, to find meaning in that and, and not let it be taken over. You know, Mehdi, that's great. I um, what you said about nuance, you know, connecting me to to the ambiguity we were talking about. Um, to back to the social media, you know, we don't are we taking time like a podcast like this, true investigative journalism, that kind of thing. What really struck me, I go all the way back four years to Trump um, starting to win the Democratic primaries, and in New Hampshire. I mean, this was very early four years ago. Uh, Ted Koppel wanted, um, Ted Koppel, by the way, the beginning of Nightline, which I grew up with as a little kid, a show that was formed around the Iranian um, hostage crisis, the Americans um, taken hostage. So that was sort of a precursor to this gripping CNN phenomenon. Like it, it would come on late and just give you this like shock hour, you know, of, of what's happening in Iran with after the revolution. And so Ted Koppel wanted to interview Trump and the Trump campaign gave him like 20 minutes only, you know, this is a man, a preeminent journalist and like, okay, so Ted Koppel walks in with his questions and Trump holds up his phone and he says famously, I don't need you guys anymore. I have this, you know, and for me, that's a marker of like a turning point, not just, you know, and well, we can do everything with that. Like, do we take time to get to know somebody? No, you know, you're, you're, your tweet, you're, your like, what's just next to your name or what you posted that, that moment. And I think therein lies just so much of the problem we keep circulating around. Vulnerability and fear. These are important themes that are underpinning your points. And I think another area where I'm seeing them come up in the past four years is in this matter of loyalty. The, devout, unquestioned, undying loyalty that the alt-right have given to someone like Donald Trump. Even if they are reflexive, even if they are accountable, even if they are responsible, there's this weird thing that's been happening where people would rather lie to the camera than be civically responsible. Responsible to others in the sense of being a decent human being. If there is internal conflict that could be reconciled. It's as though there is a decision not to. I mean, from what you're saying, Tommy, it reminds me of uh, Simone Weil's, um, you know, French philosopher who, who wrote a lot about the power of the, like the collective and, and how the dangers of the collective 
um, supersede a kind of in, in, internal investigation of the self and and to ask those harder questions. I mean, for me, what was really fundamental and it continues to be is I didn't have a, a collective, right? That's what displacement does. That's what exile does to you. You don't ever feel like a part of a collective. And so you're always walking with care and you're always asking yourself, wait, is this the right thing to do? You're, you're mindful of how you carry your, I just, you're just mindful of yourself, of the space you take up in the world because you know, you, you, there's this notion of you're a guest and that this is not really where you're from. And there's this, and so, but I think that, that if, if people are, are, are able to be brave enough to stand against the collective and to say, and to be okay with that singular experience, um, then I think the world would be better. Like it's okay to disagree with one another, right? We don't, that's the whole point. Um, but there's a way that a collective identity can shut one down to, to any kind of deeper, um, inquiry, right. Deeper sense of self and and who they are. I mean, part of that is just the way society is right. Like you look at the way, you know, there's a reason there are all these, you know, um, cliches about, about different groups and, and, you know, the jocks, the nerds, et cetera, but that, that carries over right into adulthood. And the fact that we never, never quite challenge that, um, is, is, is problematic, I think, but, but because I never felt a part of any kind of collective and, and Roger, you were sort of talking about this, right. That, that you didn't, you, you, you're kind of in the middle here, you're caught between and, and that I think just, that forces a person into a kind of self-inquiry that those in power just don't have to do, right? Like, this is where I, I kind of turn to the mystics, because through great pain and suffering comes growth and understanding, right? But it's also a choice. It's also a choice to reclaim power away from others as they define you to yourself and how you define the world, right? Suffering, you know, everybody has hurt pain everybody goes through pain but to choose to continue to suffer is a choice and to think about pain as a as a different way right as as a way to to a a larger opening up um and that's where i kind of i kind of want to take america and shake it and say listen don't be don't be don't be afraid like let go man if you let go of your fear all this goodness can open up like there's abundance here like you know like let, let go of this like fear you have of the other like we're not here man to like destroy this country right but that that's what trump has done he sold half this country on the on the false ideal of whiteness right like that is what's at stake for them like their identity like make trump Make America, I almost said make Trump great again. Make America great again is ultimately that, right? That, hey, all these brown and black people are coming in and they're and they're trying to like take take our country away from us. They're, you know, but 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 it is that is so far away from the reality of what's happening. But our our climate has sold that story, and Trump has capitalized on that story because it's fear-based. And you know, uh false right false narratives pass spread twice as fast as truth ever does so there's this constant force in my mind between and this is what i loved about about the way joe biden has sort of framed his his campaign right he it's you know you could read it as hyperbolic to some extent this like for the this fight for the soul of america but ultimately it's between truth and falsehood it's between light and dark and and and, and that and there is there's a validity to that, right? Um, and I think anybody who's trying to defend truth and to reach for the truth, and I'm not talking about like your personal truth. I'm talking about like fact, like right? empirically verifiable <laughs> fact. Fact, exactly. Like you know, like let's just talk about what the facts are. Like these Fox News, even CNN, they're they're not news. They're opinion. They should be called opinion channels. Like. You know, it's just we're in we're in chaos and someone like Trump feeds off of that. And hasn't it been, you know, for a long time, the news like conflated into advertising, conflated into, you know, the medium became the message. Like I mean, going back to the Iraq war, which, you know, I'm still trying to catch up with 
it was sold to the world. It was sold to the public a lot on CNN. We had the the shock and awe that, you know, the and these are reporters I like, by the way, but with the flak jackets going in, you know, and, and I loved it. They, you know, when they asked the late John Baudrillard in, in France, would you cover the war? He said, yes, but on one condition, I, I will only sit in front of CNN and cover it because that's the construct of the war you're, you're selling me, you know, and, and I, I'd gone through the Fox, um, the special on Roger Ailes, the creator behind Fox News, and they were completely complicit in the Bush administration of constructing the war, you know, blatantly making up facts. And, you know, these were all precursors to what where Trump didn't just, you know, happen to us. This, this stuff was coming a long time, a long time now with the technology conflated into advertising and everything sold to us. Everything's a pitch, you know, and it just becomes an identity. Wow. That's a, it's a really profound observation, Roger. When I think back to Bush Jr., I mean, I see continuity here for sure, especially so in terms of the fabrication of the Iraq war and also, you know, the idea that the terrorist is lurking in the shadows of the streets waiting to strike. And yet I also see some pretty profound differences. And I'm going to do this in a intentionally provocative way, if you don't mind. For example, throughout the Trump reign, what happened to the neoconservatism? Where is the return of old Cold War ideology that rather recently was used to stoke the fires of fear to justify another quote-unquote war on? I mean, it, it made sense when Bush Jr. was around, despite it being awful, because it made money. Republicans are generally ideological opportunists in times of crises because it's profitable. And Trump didn't do that. Did he? There were so many opportunities to manipulate uh, on a more self-evidently capitalistic basis that Trump seemed to have missed. What happened to the war on the pandemic? Where was the militarizing of, of health care? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I would say absolutely. Um, I guess his it went a lot more domestic with, with what Mehdi talked about with that, you know, one of the, the biggest, you know, buzzes for his um his base is like anything that rings you know with with racist undertones you know and i was dropping my you know right before the election i got caught behind one of the big trunk convoys that was on a mission to shut down the um the highway between new york and um or the bridges uh, between new york and um new jersey and you know they were every, every one of them was a truck like there were a hundred trucks you know and and i thought is this a tr truck commercial you know for the trump you know, like here I'm in my little Mazda, you know, I'm like, this is my identities become what I purchased. And some, I, I, I'm confused. I mean, it just seems like a, a marketing campaign where like the racism goes with a big truck and, you know, the flag and put it all together kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Well said, you know, I, I guess I, I just became at some point really surprised that Trump did so little after Bush Jr., essentially handed him a recipe for fear-based economic prosperity. He did invert it. I guess he inverted it. It's like, I'm kind of through, like, just today, right? China is, um, there's a list of companies, you know, that's going to mess with a lot of, you know, neoliberal investing and what, um, on the Mexico side, on the China side, one of his very first acts, which was like utterly horrific, the Muslim ban, where it was just this complete blanket of, you know, you're from these countries, you can't come in. And then they just laugh as people were going to protest at airports and try to get their family members, you know, to, to come to America and whatnot. Um, so it, it is this kind of inversion of like this intense isolation that plays into American ethno-nationalism, it seems. And I, I mean, I think we've arrived at this moment, right, because of of poor foreign policy decisions over a long, long period of time, right? There, you know, there's this, there's this, there tends to be this narrative um, for segments of Americans that's like, well, that happened in the past, get over it, right? Like, 
that you, you hear this when it comes to the Black Lives Matter movement. You hear this when it comes to any kind of complicated foreign policy discussion. Well the, well, the truth is, no, people can't get over it. Like, I know Iranians can't get over it. Iranians are are still pissed that true democracy was taken away from them, right? When when they overthrew, when the CIA overthrew Mossadegh. You've seen this in Venezuela. You've seen this, I mean, you see it all over the world, Right. Um, and America has this like tendency, Americans have this tendency to, to forget the past as if like what happened 50 years ago has, doesn't have repercussions today, right. you know? Right. And, 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 and let's be true. Let's be honest. Like, you know, Roger and I are both, and Tommy, you as well, right? You're, you're, we're all educators, right? We've, I've been, I've been teaching for a long time. I've had the privilege in this country to go to a really elite private school, but I also have education. You know, I was also first educated in public schools. Like, I, I've, I've taught at, I've, I've been at private institutions. I've taught at public institutions, as I do now, right? Ultimately, and I've said this. Um, sort of several times with, you know, when I'm, when I get on my soapbox with my friends, I say the, the true, the true issue here, it, the, the, what we should be fearing most is the way in which this country has systematically underfunded our education system. Oh my God. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, because when you under because that's what Iran did, right? When the revolution happened, they shut down all the universities. And when you want to destabilize a democracy, you do so by by under by 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 having a populace that that doesn't understand the ways in which to question and reason. And and they're and they're under and they're and this is the fault of our leadership, right? It's been a systematic um you know, stripping away of of resources and support for our educational system, and that's why I was so excited when I when you had you know someone like Elizabeth Warren who was talking about the fact that this starts young. This starts when families have young kids and they don't have access to early childcare and they don't have access to these to these really fundamental experiences that set the trajectory and course of a life. You know, and and for me, I I have been you know I lose sleep so much about about the children in cages because like that would that would have been us, right? We 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 needed we needed refuge, we needed asylum, and you can't suddenly turn America around and say, well, we've meddled in all of your business, right? We've done all these things to un- subvert your. Uh, autonomy in the world but now we've decided hands off like now we're just going to leave well no that's not how it works right right yeah and that's when you get a populace voting against their own best interests you know um where nothing is absolutely and i mean so much since reagan uh, the undoing of of education you can you can certainly track it back and gosh i just with with jill biden jill biden i'm just so happy every day, you know. Oh my she, God, yes! <laughs> I've taught community college for years. Um, I thought I was going to retire at my Borough Manhattan Community College, which was right by 9/11, and it is just mythically great. Those stories of students coming, you know, not prepared even in so, in some cases, and doing the work, the academic work, and you see them two years later, four years later, getting rising in socioeconomic status. Um, creating like a viable middle class that America was built on, right? I mean, 40% of our students at Queens College, where I teach now, they're in the poverty uh, line, you know? And they get educations, and we're one of the best ranked in the United States of of rising a whole step, a full step in socioeconomic class. It's a mission, you know? And, And she really shares that, which is just fantastic. Ah, I see. Fascinating. So what you're saying, Roger, is that you're okay with, you know, the aunt of the guy who created Blackwater, the private (laughs) military contractor that killed countless civilians in the Middle East, the person who is the head of your education in your country, her leaving this position. This is something you're okay with. By the way, and I know this is true for where Medi teaches, like, you know, so amazingly um, diverse, like linguistically, ethnically diverse, my college, I have you know, um, women completely covered. I mean, even their, their faces next to Orthodox Jews in my college, um, students from all over Africa, a lot of Dominican. Um, and we have the most delightful discussions. We live in community. There is no, we even talk politics and there's no, there's no real contention. I mean, it's just amazing 
what that kind of humanistic forum, the possibilities can happen. You know, we're, we're there in a, like Mehdi talked about the collective, but it's, we're here on almost a social compact of, of tolerance, of open-mindedness. And it's no accident, right? Like who voted for Joe Biden? It's that density, right? And degrees is what they say, the D&D, like the educated, but also people, New Yorkers, even if you do live in a, a particular ethnic enclave, you can't help but interact with so many people, different people. I'm, I tell my Texas friends, I try before we have to defriend each other, like other people aren't scary. You know, you just get to know them, but, but you have to live among them, right? Like, mm. And you guys are absolutely right to be circling back to the politics of fear, uh, at least beginning this century, and of course before that, but more specifically in this century, there was obviously a ton of racism there too. But when we talk about the politics of fear now, it, it seems more specifically utilized and more self-evidently identifiable as, as something like a tool, something that's being used strategically, very strategically, but differently than, than what was going on in the Bush Jr. era. There's like a Trump brand of fear, I suppose, where intolerance is now more impulsive, um, the impulse also towards outright violence openly against people of color, it, it's frighteningly common now. Not to undermine racism in the past, but this all makes me wonder how and whether this can all be fixed. Mehdi, uh, not too long ago you were talking about the erosion of education. Is fixing education the solution to ending this Trump brand of fear? Oh, completely. Completely. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not saying, you know, I grew up in Massachusetts. I went to school in Cambridge. And, you know, not to say that Boston and Cambridge doesn't have many issues, right? The history of busing, et cetera. However, when I look at other parts of the country, because I also, you know, I spent three years uh, in Indiana, where I went to graduate school at Purdue. I spent a year in Wisconsin, Madison, Wisconsin. And, um, you know, I've lived in other places. And so I, I never felt the kinds of, of, of tensions or othering that I did um, growing up here that I did when I went to the Midwest, right? And I'm not knocking the Midwest because I think there are good people everywhere. Um, and I and I think nothing is gained by disenfranchising half the country in that way to say, you know, you don't. But the truth is, the truth is that that people in that part of the country, um, there just isn't as diver much diversity. And so the other is allowed to like grow in their imaginations as as something fearful. And and that's what that's what Trump preys on. And when you don't have a system in this country where you don't support, you know, um, reading, for example, right, reading widely, when you don't have writers in, in the schools, when you don't have artists in the schools, I mean, th these are, you know, th these are opportunities to get to know the, the other, right? Um, and, and so I, I just, I really do believe that, you know, um, if people are given the opportunity, right, to get to know one another as human beings, that so many of these, this much of like this fearful rhetoric will fall away. Um, but I think, you know, an informed populace is a, is a difficult populace to control. And I think, you know, the, the, the system has known that this isn't unique to America. It's all around the world. And, and so how do you, how do you advocate then for that? Right? Like, how do you advocate? Like, it, I think it takes the population to, to do so. Yeah. Maybe we just need to have all population in a really cold climate, you know, something permanently <laughs> Scandinavian. Yeah, man. Um, the exposure, you know, for sure. And the, I, I don't, I don't have the answer, but I do empirically see the difference when people interact, you know, in, in, in certain cities with each other, you know, like wearing, and I think that's one of the reasons why my father had so much fear, you know, just happened to get a job in San Antonio back in the day, San Antonio changed a lot, by the way, became a lot more progressive as, as it grew and more cosmopolitan. But, but when you're isolated and just, you know, 
Um, I had an old professor, one of my early professors, um, when Trump got elected the first time, the, the only time, um, and I was taking him back from a dinner party at my house, him and his wife, and his wife said something that really messed me up, you know, and we were like Trump bashing and how could the people support him and all of this. And she said, you know, I hate to be the one, but if you were born in a rural community and, you know, that ideology is appealing to you, it would probably speak to you and you probably would just support, you know, and it, it kind of messed with me, you know, and I, I do think education is, is definitely an antidote um, for sure. And then also like it, just an interaction and exposure. But what, what happens when you're given a, you know, you have a phone in your hand and now God help us all, like you can connect with everybody else that has the same kind of isolated, you know, you're in this small community, this, let's say rural, I don't want to pick on rural, but let's say rural. And suddenly you're connected with all of these like-minded people in these little spots that carry Trump, you know, that he almost, you know, got a good portion of the popular vote. That's, not great. You know, that's, that's not like you're not working through or, or being exposed to another side. Uh, yeah. Well said. I'm thinking back now to Medi's passage, uh, a part in particular near the end that I'd like to read for the two of you, if you don't mind. We waited for someone to speak, but no one did. At one point, someone attempted to start us all in a song of remembrance but not everyone knew the words, and our voices wouldn't come together in any meaningful way, and so we all grew silent. The tension in this passage really speaks to me. What it says is that we can come together, we can connect, we can belong, we can support one another in reconciling suffering. And yet, despite our best efforts, there's an awkwardness. There is perhaps a chance that even if we do come together, some of the things we wish to reconcile may not be reconciled. And so somehow I really do have hope for education to get, get us all back to tolerance, to lowering the temperature, Ella Biden. We will have time to come together and perhaps there will be silence, but it's not a silence that we should be afraid of. Mm. Uh, yeah, and I and I think it's um, and thank you for that, Tommy. But and I think that's like, that's the space where where I I try to work most as as a writer, and and it's it's a difficult space because it is you know it is a space that doesn't have um, that that is rife with conflict. It is rife with a uh, sense of insecurity, a fear, but also. Right, what brought us there was a shared kind of notion of reaching for for love at the same time, right? Because we wanted to say, we wanted to do something to 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 remember this 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 lost life, and and that despite all our political differences, there's there's that that a life has been lost, and 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 human lives matter, and it matters for us to try to to mark that moment. And, and this is where I think, you know, I, I have this quote by, um, which I'll, which I'll read cause I have it here in front of me, um, by, uh, Herman Hess. Right. And let me just get this right here. He said, um, you know, the light dawns with the transformation of all outward into inward things of the world into the self. But just as every soldier shot to death is this eternal repetition of an error, so the truth must be repeated forever and ever in a thousand forms. And what is the truth? It is love. It is love that endures. Love that is the only thing worth inheriting. Love that is the making of art that yearns for truth. What can artists do in the face of great oppression? They can work. They can reach for the truth. And... I, I always just kind of return to this because the, I don't think there's an easy answer. I think the answer is you continue to fight those forces that are hateful, that are fearful, that are propaganda with with art, with 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 empathy, with love, and. And you know, th there's a reason why all the mystics and and you know have have kind of come to this conclusion that that love is the only thing that endures, right? Like we all, in some way, hunger for the way our mother held us when we were hurt and children and and 
crying out into a world that we did not understand and that scared us. Like, I don't think we ever kind of lose that. We just grow older and the world becomes more distant and people grow apart. And so how do we, how do we fight that force that, that force that will open up emptiness and, 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 you know, people can use it as an opportunity to fill it with hate and fear. Um, So I just think we have to fight this rhetoric with, Things like you're doing, Tommy, like things like this, like I think they do matter, you know, so. After 9-11, you know, when I was teaching next next door at Borough Manhattan Community College, I, I got shaken out of my apathy and I started, um, I'm an Americanist scholar by training, but also a, a creative writer and translator. And I started a Middle Eastern American literature course, like I had to go through the channels and get it approved. And, you know, there was like the, the administration was really supportive, like do something, you know, and now I carry that at, to Queens College. I'm, I'm this semester, I'm teaching a um, senior seminar, Middle Eastern American Literature and Culture, where we really interrogate from the 19th century. Um, importantly, American, you know, some of the seminal American writers, like people don't realize, like Ralph Waldo Emerson um, was fascinated with the mystics. Um and he accessed them through German um, translations and hundreds of lines, like 2000 lines of, of poetry. He would um, I have a, a book out on it. And I think that the amazing thing that's happened in this class, half of the half of the students have familiarity with the Middle East um, or, you know, first generation, second generation. The other half are non Middle Eastern and there are all kinds of you know, Dominican, um, you know, uh, Russian extraction. And they're just curious, you know, and we have kind of some ground rules of like respect and all that, you know, humanistic good stuff. And, you know, they're allowed the people that don't have familiarity to ask any question. And I'm not the only informant, right? Because how can you be an informant of the Middle East? And it's just amazing um, to have those kind of conversations and kind of build a cast a pretty wide net. And, you know, the last thing I'd say too, what, what they're amazed at, what I'm still amazed at, there was with the ebb of Christianity in America, you know, relatively speaking in the 19th century, you got what, you know, the famously Emerson transcendentalism, like we'll, and it still carries over today. Like, yes, there are super religious people in America, but this kind of like American easy breezy, you know, I'll be in touch with nature. You know, we see the yoga culture, as it were, you know, and, and, you know, we can trace that a lot back to Emerson um, for better, for better, for sure, and for worse. The problem with, you know, give Americans roomy and they they reduce them to a, a bumper sticker. You know, it's like I saw that sign, make America roomy again. Like, OK, that's a good point, you know, but there's a lot going on with roomy. Like we need to maybe in- interrogate that, too. But what, I, what I'm building to, it's just it's just amazing that, you know, Emerson really gravitated. Walt Whitman, I have an article out um, his drum taps, which, you know, this, this famous book he wrote about the civil war after being a nurse and tending to thousands of wounded dying soldiers, I come to find out he accessed, he imitated this specific book, Alger's poetry of the East. And maybe 50% of it is Persian imitations of, of his own, you know, the seminal American poet writing about probably arguably the most important, you know, happening in American, to date, uh, in American uh, history. And why did he go? He, he was looking for what Mehdi's talking about. He's like looking for some kind of universality, some kind of way to bridge it. Maybe he was too close to his own, you know, the Christian background in this country. But I just find that utterly fascinating. And I don't think that's died. I think there's there's still that real hunger in America. And I think there is a kind of gravitating interest in the Middle East for that kind of reason, beyond the kind of stereotypes and horrific kind of, you know, shows they make and and whatnot. And regardless of any tension that comes up along the way, it's okay. You are okay. In the discomfort, there is an opportunity, if you accept it, for compassion, for learning, to empower yourself to grow. There is no fear here that will materialize into some sort of existential threat. You know, this makes me think of another passage. It comes from somebody the two of you might know. It goes a little like this. To bring just a little literary criticism, as well as Sufi mysticism, into my conclusion, I sometimes wonder if I'd really even want to be just one thing or the other. The classical masters, after all, 
seem to inhabit the space between the material and spiritual worlds. Even more, they objectify and figuratively play with the constructs of their own ego identities. Reflecting over my own life story, I see now how all that separation I felt has been an illusion. Through writing in connection to my beloved Iranian-American wife, my better half, (laughs) I found a complete life where I most felt divided between my two countries. And you're okay. You are doing just fine. Wow, that's great. Hey, I didn't write it. You did. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're you're, uh, accessing it, really. It's a compliment. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that moment, Roger, because I do think it's... um, it is it is the reaching for the universal. You know, we all we what do we all have in common? Well, the human condition is we are born and we all know we die. We don't know when, we don't know how, but we know it will happen. And that that gives us time, right? Time in the way in which we can we can live our lives and and the way in which we can sort of hopefully right grow and grow. Growth is a form of ascension, right? A form of ascension to to whatever you hold sacred, um, but 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 in that process, it is not it is not like a, a nice linear like slope, right? It is it is dogged. There are there are tons of uh, pitfalls and way stations along the way. But to go back to what you were saying, Tommy, and 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 I think this is the 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 thing I I tell my students and what I learned from my my immigrant mother here was that. When you don't know something, it is very much okay to say, I don't know, can you tell me, right? Or to ask. And you look at this president, you look at, you know, he's somebody who's incapable of saying, I don't know, can I learn? And, you know, I tell my students that you, you, if you overcome this, if you overcome this fear of being wrong or asking what you might think is a silly or stupid question or saying simply, I don't know what that word means, or I don't know what you're talking about. Can you, can you please say it? If we all just did that more, um, I think we'd be okay. Like, you know, cause there's nothing wrong with not knowing something. That's the whole point of living, I think. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Very well said. You know, I, I've shared on this show before that my wife is a dialectical behavior therapist We speak of mindfulness all the time, and something that we talk about quite a bit is this matter of suffering. And my wife has taught me that suffering is a choice. Absolutely, there are situations where suffering is inevitable, but the extents of it, how much it hurts, how long it goes on for, is something that we do have power over at the end of the day. And so I think if we can be humble enough to just say, I don't know, this hurts, I admit it, and I surrender to not knowing because I need to grow and I need help, maybe we'll make it out of this thing okay. Not just for myself, but together. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Roger and Mehdi, as I suspected from the top, this would be a chat that would fly by. I think we could talk for hours. We've covered so much with incredible nuance and precision, and that's owed, I think, not just to your training and your passion, but really to your willingness to be vulnerable with a stranger to share your deeply personal reflections, especially on a time and place in different spaces where my privilege insulates me from ever really experiencing. And I'm so grateful to both of you for that. Guys, thank you so much for being on this show with me. Thanks Thanks a lot, Tommy. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you, Roger. Thank you both. It was a pleasure.